This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America, brought to you through the cooperation of the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, and Link TV. And now, here's host Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week, we'll be focusing on Brazil, the corruption cases that threaten that country's president, and the controversial Amazon Dam project at the heart of the country's energy development. But first, Natalie Oettinger has our weekly review of news from around Latin America. U.S. President Barack Obama used his speech to the United Nations this week as another venue to criticize the U.S. Congress for its inaction regarding Cuba. The president has asked for Congress to officially rescind the U.S. trade embargo against Cuba. His statements against the embargo were met with warm applause from the international audience. But Obama also noted the U.S. will maintain a balanced policy toward Cuba because of that country's poor human rights record. Change won't come overnight to Cuba, but I'm confident that openness, not coercion, will support the reforms and better the life the Cuban people deserve. Obama met with Cuba's president, Raul Castro, during the series of UN meetings and speeches. It was the first time the two presidents had met in the U.S. since the country's normalized relations this summer. In his UN speech, Castro not only called for an end to the embargo, but for the U.S. to return its military base at Guantanamo to Cuban control. The Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia, the FARC, announced this week it will no longer train new rebel recruits. This announcement comes in the wake of the statement last week that the FARC and Colombian government have pledged to resolve negotiations and sign a peace treaty. Both sides say they hope to wrap up the peace process in the next six months. But leaders of the FARC say they could see the process taking longer. Colombia's civil war, the longest-running current civil war in the world, has stretched on for 51 years. At least 220,000 people have died in the conflict, and the war has left at least 6 million people as refugees. The FARC says it is observing a unilateral ceasefire, but Colombian human rights groups have recorded a variety of violent incidents and attacks linked to the rebels last month. She made herself infamous by taking pictures of herself sipping champagne in limos. But now she's behind bars after a month of eluding authorities. She's Brazil's fugitive mayor, Mayor Liriana Leite of Bom Jardim in the northeastern part of the country. Prosecutors say she engineered a scheme to siphon off $4 million from the city's schools to support her extravagant lifestyle. She was known for her long vacations away from the city and the posting of glamorous photos on social media. Prosecutors say her plan stole funds meant to provide lunches for poor children in the city's schools. We'll have more on corruption in Brazil and the variety of corruption cases affecting the country after the newscast. More this week about the oddities of drug smuggling. This time, the hand of fate seemingly intervened on a drug-running operation gone wrong. Smugglers in the Mexican state of Tamaulipas had the bright idea the best way to avoid detection for their load of cocaine was to hide it where the airbags usually are stored in their sports utility vehicle. Predictably, the two men taking the cocaine to the border were involved in an accident. 
and without the airbags, they were killed. Mexican police say the 25 kilograms of cocaine they discovered at the crash scene were worth $7.5 million. For Latin Pulse, I'm Natalie Ottinger. Thanks, Natalie. Our shout-out this week goes to our listeners in Guatemala City, Guatemala. We had more listeners in Guatemala City this past month than anywhere else except for the suburbs of Washington, D.C. So we say mil gracias to all of our listeners in Guatemala City and elsewhere around the globe. And now on to Brazil. Last week saw the sentencing of the highest-ranking member of the Workers' Party to prison for corruption, while Vicari Neto, the former party treasurer, must now serve 15 years in prison for taking at least a million dollars in bribes. Bribes connected to a scandal involving some of Brazil's largest construction firms, the state-run oil firm Petrobras, and members of the party and the government. The Workers' Party has run Brazil for the past 13 years, but many are now calling for President Dilma Rousseff to step down or to be impeached. So far, no evidence links the president to the scandal, but many hold her responsible for the corruption in her party. And some wonder why she did not know about a scandal that stretches back to before her time in the presidency, to when she served as the country's energy minister. We asked Matt Taylor at American University to untangle some of the complexities of the scandal for us. Taylor spent several months this year in Brazil. He's the co-editor of the book, Corruption and Democracy in Brazil, The Struggle for Accountability. He joined us via Skype from Washington, D.C. And I have to say, I haven't seen Brazil as polarized uh, as it was this year uh, in all of my experience in Brazil, dating back to the early 1990s. That being said, I do think that for now, uh, President Rousseff seems to have dodged the impeachment bullet. Uh, she's put together uh, a number of sort of, uh, she's stitched together a number of political alliances, including with the Senate president, uh, Henan Calleros, who uh, is also, who, who, who is under investigation uh, in the Lava Jato scandal, but she seems to have reached some sort of an accommodation with him. Um, even though the PMDB, her key uh, ally in the coalition government, seems to be ready to disembark from the government, some of the, the most strident calls for impeachment have um, dropped off in recent months, partly because the Workers' Party, Dilma Rousseff's uh, party, uh, has uh, claimed that impeaching a popularly elected president would be akin to golpismo, would be akin to um, overthrowing the government illegitimately. And so this, these, um, this claim, I think, has some resonance, and um, uh, Dilma is helped by the fact that the opposition itself is divided. So I think that impeachment for now seems to be off the table, but she's in a very precarious position. Her polling numbers last I saw were in single digits, and I, I, I wonder what you think about this, that particular argument that in, impeachment means an overthrow of the government. Um, certainly, if there's no good reason to impeach a president, and we've seen sometimes those things go forward in various places, including the United States, impeachment for no good reason. But um, there, there hasn't been anything that has pointed the finger directly at President Rousseff in any of these corruption scandals that have been roiling around in, in Brazil these last few years. You know, to a certain extent, you're correct. The, the, there is no uh, smoking gun here that ties Dilma Rousseff directly 
to wrongdoing, although she was, um, you know, a leading minister at the time it was going on. She oversaw Petrobras and she was uh, the chair of the Petrobras board when a lot of these uh, crimes were allegedly being committed. Th that being said, the rules for impeachment in Brazil are fairly restrictive uh, in that they, they require that the crime that leads to impeachment be committed during the term uh, in which impeachment takes place. So this actually helps to, um, you know, protect Dilma against impeachment. And uh, I think you're absolutely right. You know, impeachment is both a political and a legal process. Um, uh, politically, uh, Dilma is very, very vulnerable. Uh, legally, though, there's no, there's no smoking gun at this point. Let's talk then about the scandals themselves. Uh, you mentioned the, the scandal that has touched even people in the Senate in Brazil. What's at issue in, the, in, in these particular corruption scandals? What's been going on? The central accusation is that uh, large construction firms were in collusion amongst themselves alongside uh, working alongside uh, staff in Petrobras to overbill, overcharge, and um, those uh, illicit payments were then divvied up between the Petrobras employees who took a cut but then passed on the bulk of the overbilling. Uh, they pa passed on most of those receipts to uh, three parties, including the Workers' Party uh, and the PMDB, the two sort of leading coalition partners. The value that's been returned uh, is now nearing a billion dollars through a series of, of plea uh, bargains. This is uh, one of the... I guess, first times where we've seen something that people had long suspected had been ongoing, uh, the, the collusion between construction firms and government uh, businesses has been ongoing since the military regime, and there's been evidence of this in the past, but never before had it become as apparent as it has in this prosecution that uh, this was happening on such a scale. And so um, the, the, the magnitude of this scandal is really unprecedented. And the fact that it's been uncovered uh, says a great deal about the strength of both the investigations by the federal police and the prosecution by the Ministerio Público, Brazil's uh, prosecutorial branch. We want to talk about those new strengths in a bit. Uh, maybe an example of that is to my next question. Which, which has to do with the, the former president, President Ignacio Lula da Silva, who is so popular among people in Latin America, he's just known as Lula. Um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, prosecutors are, are going after this former president who's very, very popular still in Brazil. Uh, uh, that speaks to the wider atmosphere of, of accountability, does it not? Let's be careful. There, there is some evidence that uh, Lula may have done things that could be legal. Um, there, there is not a, a very, uh, or there's no public case against him yet. So uh, there are allegations that he he used his um, offices as former president to lobby on behalf of some of these construction firms in Africa, which under the Brazilian constitution would be illegal. 
this is kind of interesting, I think, from an American perspective, because such lobbying is so commonplace amongst uh, American former presidents. But um, under Brazilian law, if he engaged in lobbying on behalf of, of Brazilian firms um, and was paid to do so, that would be illegal. The, the Petrobras scandal has not reached Lula directly, however. Uh, we don't, we don't, there is no evidence that um, he was leading or uh, participating in this, although his chief of staff, José de Seu, who had been jailed in the Mensalão scandal, was jailed again beginning in August um, in the Petrobras scandal for his alleged involvement. Does all of these high-level prosecutions or at least questions of people who hold high-level offices or held high-level offices say something about how far Brazil has come in trying to combat corruption? Well, I think it does. The, you know, let me say two things about the prosecution. The first is this is really unprecedented in terms of the number of high-level business executives who have been jailed. Um, in past uh, corruption scandals, uh, prosecutors have gone after politicians, but they've been reticent to go after business people. And uh, in this case, uh, partly as a result of the legal strategy that they've followed, which I can explain in a moment, but partly as a result of this strategy, they started with business people, and they have not been at all shy about putting business people in jail executives from the five largest construction firms in Brazil are all in jail at this point, including uh, Marcelo Odebrecht, who's the uh, scion of the uh, Odebrecht fortune, which is one of the largest um, uh, construction fortunes in Brazil. And so turning to the prosecution strategy, this, is a, this has been a very uh, well-constructed strategy from the perspective of uh, attempting to go after low-level executives within Petrobras, within the construction firms, to then build a case against higher-ups. Um, and under Brazilian law, it's very important that they proceed in this way because once you begin to involve uh, politicians, and particularly sitting politicians, cases immediately are taken to the Supreme Federal Tribunal, the STF. And uh, the STF has, uh, to put it delicately, not been the most uh, aggressive court in convicting politicians in the past. The first politician convicted in Brazil, sitting politician convicted in Brazil at the federal level, wasn't convicted until 2010, meaning it took 25 years of democracy before the STF um, was willing to convict a sitting politician, despite some very um, important corruption cases along the way, including uh, the case that led to the impeachment of Fernando Collor as president. Haven't we seen the protest movement come in and come out of, of trying to hold politicians' feet to the fire? Is, is that also what's keeping prosecutors accelerating these cases forward? Or, or do you see that as separated from, from what's happening in the justice system? I, I do think that they are separate. Um, the, the protest movement has been ongoing, but it has taken on an increasingly partisan bent, I would say, and or at least it's been portrayed as having a part, partisan bent by supporters of the government. 
And so I think that uh, the protest movement is helpful in demonstrating civil society support for the investigations, but the two things are quite different. Prosecutors in this particular case uh, are moving forward more, I would say, less uh, with electoral or political uh, considerations in mind and more with the legal uh, considerations at, at sort of the forefront of their minds. And, and part of this has to do with the fact that the prosecutorial body in Brazil is independent of the other branches of government. One of my, one of my former colleagues at the University of Sao Paulo, Rogério Arantes, famously wrote that the Ministerio Público is a fourth branch of government in Brazil. It is uh, so independent that it, you know, it does not fall under the political influence of the other spheres. Well, with that, we thank you. Professor Matt Taylor at American University, the co-editor of Corruption and Democracy in Brazil, The Struggle for Accountability, joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. today on Latin Pulse. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, the conflict between developmental progress and indigenous rights in the Amazon. Stay with us. Democracy is synonymous with independence. Independence is synonymous with emancipation. Emancipation is synonymous with sovereignty. Sovereignty is synonymous with superiority. Superiority is synonymous with arrogance. Arrogance is synonymous with domination. And domination is synonymous with dictatorship. Dictatorship always finds its way. Amnesty International. Learn. Indignate. Act. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Brazil's Environmental Protection Agency stepped in to at least temporarily halt further construction on the Belamonchi Dam this week. This government agency is concerned that construction and utility firms building the Belamonchi Dam haven't done enough to reduce environmental impacts on the Amazon and on the people living near the dam site. When it's complete, Belamonchi will be the world's third largest dam and will provide hydroelectric power to millions. But it has also affected thousands in the area that will be flooded by the dam, an area that includes various indigenous groups who remain unhappy about the dam project taking their land. We asked Eve Bratman at American University to give us an update on the controversial project. Bratman's research revolves around the dam and what it has meant for both Brazil's energy policy and environmental impacts. We reached her via Skype from Washington, D.C. One of the most interesting things about this project has been the alternate um, resistance of the dam by many of the indigenous and uh, peasant fishermen and farmers in the region, uh, followed by a very strong-armed response from the Brazilian state that insists that this dam is necessary for development um, both locally and also of the national energy grid. My uh, analysis in a nutshell of this project is that it is a, a real keystone for Brazil's energy system. Uh, Brazil aims to uh, connect its uh, very high-producing Itaipu Dam in the south of the country to an energy matrix that is largely um, fueled in, in the season when Itaipu is not producing very much by uh, a whole network of dams along the uh, tributaries to the Amazon from the north of the country. And so in big picture, Belomonchi, which is slated to be the world's third largest hydroelectric dam, is, is really an essential piece of making Brazil's bigger 
plan for uh, having most of the country um, running on renewable hydroelectric energy um, up and, and running. So if this dam is stopped, it really puts a wrench in those plans. And as this dam moves forward, it also makes possible um, not just a very different reality for the people living along the Shingu River, where it's slated to be constructed, but uh, but it's highly symbolically charged and means a lot for all of the other Amazon dam projects that are also slated for construction in the next 15 years. Hasn't it already started construction, even though there have been various court rulings to, to stop it? Yes. Uh, the latest, in fact, is that just this week, IBAMA, Brazil's Environmental Protection Agency uh, has has threatened to suspend the operating license on the dam until the consortium of companies that's building the dam uh, fulfills their agreements to mitigate some of the the social and environmental effects of the dam. And, and what would some of those promises be? There are a number of uh, pretty serious human rights concerns. Um, Many of those include the, the displacement of some 20,000 people that are in the city of Altamira, and, um, which is a, a pretty major city. It's a city that now has a population of over 100,000 people, um, 20,000 being about 20% of the city getting displaced is no small thing. And on top of that, uh, there's a number of um, concerns from the indigenous populations about free prior and informed consent violations. So there's international human rights law at stake. Uh, one of the, the local um, Ministerio Publico or, or um, public attorney general um, office uh, representatives visited um, one of the, the local tribes and, and called it a cultural genocide that had taken place there because of the the many um, TVs and um, other goodies that the the consortium basically handed out to the population to try to buy off their affection. And um, and the, the account of, of what uh, conditions looked like in that village was um, is incredibly uh, disturbing in the sense that so much of, of um, the group's way of life has, has been radically, so radically transformed um, by by these new technologies and essentially by the loss of the, the habitat and landscape in which the the tribe had traditionally lived because of all the construction that's surrounding them. Uh, am I incorrect in, in saying that there have also been cases not just of, of handing out benefits to, to people to get them to agree to the construction, but hasn't there also been cases of coercion? Uh, oh, certainly. Um, and the human rights concerns have dated back even to around 2001 when um, there was an assassination of someone named Ademir Federici um, who, uh, who was nicknamed Dema and was assassinated um, outside of his home in Altamira for opposing the dam. And then the more recent cases of, of coercion um, include some allegations that the, the Bella Monchi, um, some of the, the companies like Norci Energia, um, have been involved um, in getting uh, bribes um, as part of the whole um, fallout of the Lava Jato scandal, many of these construction companies have been implicated in, um, in you know, politically uh, corrupt activities. Um, and so the, the motive for constructing the dam itself is in question. That's the scandal that is threatening the Rousseff administration right now, is it not? Correct. Yes, yes, it is. And so there are 
tremendous, uh, you know, fallout effects um, because so much of um, the scandal has has been about the power of um, many of these construction companies uh, and their links to political officials. And so um, the the investigations have had ramifications, um, uh, not directly in stopping any of these projects that have already been approved and gone through um, appropriate, you know, licensing um, procedures and oversight this whole time, but but certainly which call into question some of the whole reason for being with the, the, the raison d'etre of these of these projects in the first place. Indigenous groups, environmentalists was, of course, like to stop this project altogether. But I wonder whether the environmental and the cultural damage has already been done. Yeah, I mean, to a large extent, it really has. And it's it's terribly sad to say it. But um, I, stopping the dam at this point and, and just turning... Um, walking away is not necessarily the right answer here. I, I do think it's important and good that the environmental agency is sending a clear signal by stopping the, uh, just this week, by by suspending the operating license for the dam. But um, what that does is effectively hold a, a accountable the construction um, consortium for the obligations that have been promised um, to take place since the very beginning of this project. But um, suspending the project at this point and then not having any of the, the rest of the mitigation efforts go forward and just walking away would leave um, basically a, a, what currently looks like a sort of post-apocalyptic landscape uh, just sitting empty. And um, and ultimately I would, um, would not help Brazil much meet its renewable energy goals either. So um, it's, it's incredibly... Um, frustrating and complex because um, the environmental damage has largely already been done. And, and certainly, if nothing is, is um, done, then it, things will only get worse. So I do believe that things can get better at this point, but uh, mostly the, the deal has gone forward. And now the question is, is mostly about how to offset the, the, the damage that, and havoc that it's going to wreak in people's lives and on landscapes as much as possible. You mentioned early on that that this is a cornerstone policy as part of Brazil's energy policy, and certainly Brazil's struggling right now with with uh, economic challenges. Isn't that argument the the trump card now that that this project has already started, that Brazil needs renewable energy, and so unfortunately, the indigenous and those who need to to move are are having to pay the price for for that policy there's there's no going back yes it's it's um it's very much a uh, a question of development at what cost and the nation as a whole has decided that it's it's worth the cost to them to uh to make these sorts of policy changes and i should note at the international level as well dams are considered renewable energy there was extensive discussion over the utility of um, dams as a, a big dams in particular as as part of the world commission on dams uh, uh, there was a lot of work around around this in, in around the year 2000 the conclusion was not that mega dams are a good thing across the board but um, increasingly 
even the World Bank has um, begun funding dam projects, again, not the Bellamonchi Dam, but, um, but other dam projects around the world, and has started to, um, to, to really reemphasize that, that, that um, getting energy from hydroelectrics is an important part of reaching um, global renewable energy uh, goals. And as to Brazil in particular, um, I, you know, I think it's a, it's a very tragic set of choices to make. And, and the country could easily, um, five and ten years ago, have gone all out on wind and tidal energy and solar energy, but very explicitly decided that it wasn't worth the startup costs of uh, of investing in some of those technologies and instead decided that damming tributaries to the Amazon was uh, a, a path of, of um, less cost and less resistance. But it certainly comes at a very, very high social and ecological price. Thank you so much. Eve Bratman of American University joining us via Skype from Washington, D.C. on Latin Pulse today. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rick. It was lovely to talk with you again. Thanks for joining us on Latin Pulse this week for our focus on Brazil. If you'd like to send us your suggestions or comments, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud. You may write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's latinpulse, all one word, at gmx.com. If you're looking for earlier editions of Latin Pulse, we're available in various locations on the web, including iTunes, Facebook, and Flipboard. You can also find us in the Brazilian online game, Minimundos. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org slash Latin Pulse. Thanks for joining us this week on Latin Pulse for our entire team, associate producer Natalie Ottinger and technical director Jim Singer. I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced at the School of Communications at Webster University, the global university, headquartered in St. Louis, Missouri, with music copyright support through Webster University and Link TV. This program is copyright 2015 Las Rocas Productions. Music